Welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast where we share stories about music from all over the world. Thank you for joining me today. On today's show, I am very pleased to be talking to the American writer John Seabrook. John Seabrook is a longtime staff writer at the New Yorker magazine, as well as the author of one of my favorite music books of 2015, called The Song Machine, Inside the Hit Factory. In The Song Machine, Seabrook tells the story of how modern pop songwriting has evolved over the past three decades. Seabrook demonstrates how, like snack food engineers, modern pop craftsmen strive to manufacture what is referred to as musical bliss points, or hooks, in an attempt to create the catchiest, earwormiest, most widely appealing and thus profitable hit songs they can. With almost eerie prescience, the best pop songwriters know which melodies, riffs, and rhythms will appeal to the masses, and inspire those same masses to part with their hard-earned dollars. Now, of course, this is nothing new. There have always been figures in music, songwriters, musicians, producers, who know a hit when they hear one. But at the same time, the modern music industry is in a state of catastrophic disruption, and this has spurred intense competition, innovation, and increasingly seductive, and some would say soulless, new musical products. The Song Machine is an engaging, often funny, and at times unsettling read, and I was happy to be able to talk to John about all of his discoveries and unique insight into the rapidly changing world of modern pop. I was particularly eager to ask John about the legendary shadowy pop songwriter Max Martin, whose name you probably haven't heard, but who has written many of the biggest pop hits of the past 20 years. For a bit of perspective, Max Martin is currently second, second, on the list of most number one hits for a producer. Who's in first place, you ask? His partial namesake, the recently deceased Beatles producer, Sir George Martin. No relation. I also asked my guest about why the tiny Scandinavian nation of Sweden, of all places, has produced several of the most successful pop songwriters in the world. And if you're curious to know why you can't remember your pin code, but you can recite truly terrible Backstreet Boys lyrics on demand, you'll want to listen to this episode of Travels in Music, featuring John Seabrook. So first off, thank you so much for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. And I'm uh, the book is uh, it's a really fun fun read. It, it's at times almost uh, disturbing, um, but it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's what I like, disturbing fun. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's the best kind. Um, so tell me a little bit about where this book came from. I know it was sort of partly inspired by driving with your son. Um, it did actually, it sort of began in two places. It began <clears throat> sort of in a more of like professional context when the New Yorker asked me to do a profile of uh, these two Norwegian producers who call themselves Stargate, um, and then at the same time, my son was uh, recently installed in the front seat of the car, 
and had changed the radio stations and was listening to uh, you know contemporary pop music, some of which was made by these Norwegian guys. Um, and so those two things kind of happened at more or less the same time. And uh, the the Norwegian <clears throat> uh, thing was my first um, my my first entry into the world of how pop producers actually operate uh, in the studio. Uh, I didn't really uh, go into the piece thinking that uh, that their methods were that different from methods of previous decades of songwriters and producers. But I sort of realized, and, and you know, sometimes it's hard to, to have enough perspective on things to realize how much things have changed if you're just kind of jumping into it at one point. But after spending some time with them and, and watching them and then sort of trying to put it into context of, of pop song writing history, I kind of realized that there had been this enormous change, uh, mainly driven by technology, computers, and the ability to make songs on computers, uh, but also by this new, uh, well, sort of taken from hip-hop technique of track, of making a track first and then putting a hook on top of it, uh, which was very different from the old method of melody and lyrics, and then you do the production afterwards. And a whole bunch of things had, had changed because of that basic change. And so I realized at a certain point that this was, you know, a larger story than a book, than, than an article, and that, that I should write a book about it. And, um, you know, so it, that was the beginning. And then I just tried to sort of follow the uh, path wherever it led. It, it obviously led me fairly quickly to Sweden. Yeah, that's that, that. I found that part absolutely fascinating. So, so tell us why Sweden produces, you know, so many great pop songwriters. Well, again, I was sort of working backwards. I yeah, I looked at the charts, and you know, if you look at the Billboard charts uh, on almost any given week, you'll see that uh, a lot of Swedish names are in the top ten in the not in the artist names, but in the the smaller type under the songs, the people who write and produce the songs. And one name in particular uh, kept coming up was this uh, uh, name Max Martin, uh, uh, not a not a Swedish-sounding name, but a, a made-up name. Uh, and that I realized that this guy had actually written, you know, many of the songs that I was listening to with my son in the car, which he thought the artist had had written, and and that his proteges and associates, particularly this guy Dr. Luke had written a bunch of other songs that, that we were listening to in the car. And, and that struck me as very strange because, um, you know, this whole sort of technology-driven world of music making is supposed to be uh, democratizing uh, in that it, it's much cheaper to make songs now than it used to be. You don't need studio musicians. You don't need a studio. Uh, you can do it all on a laptop in your bedroom. And yet, in spite of that, it appeared that at the very top, it wasn't democratic at all, that, th that there was actually just a very few people that uh, were, were making these songs. And so, so I realized that you know, Sweden was, was a place that I needed to go to try to figure out how that happened. And you know, I, what I came up with was uh, not just one reason, but I think there's a number of reasons that intersect in an interesting way that produce this phenomenon. I think one is 
you know, that they do have a sort of a natural gift for melody that, that we know from ABBA, of course. And actually, you can hear in folk songs and religious uh, hymns as well. It's a very, and even in the national anthem, it, it's a very sort of melodic uh, driven, melody driven folk music. Uh, so I think that's in them. Uh, but I, also, I think they're very technologically savvy. It's a country of great broadband penetration. A lot of people grow up with computers, and uh, they also grow up taking music lessons in school because it's a great state-sponsored music education system, too. And, and so the combination of having great musical facility, great uh, technical, good technical facility, uh, a sort of melodic tradition, and, uh, and then I think the final piece in terms of what, what allowed the Swedes to be so successful in America was, I think they take a different perspective on R&B uh, than, than American writers do. I think it's harder in America if you're a white guy uh, and, and, and you're trying to write R&B-driven pop songs. Uh, I think you, you don't get a lot of opportunities to work with, with black artists or other black... I think it, you know, because of R&B and pop in this country kind of emerged from these racial categories that go back a long way, whereas in Sweden, you know, that was never really the, the case. Uh, white people who want to write R&B or, or, or have no inhibitions about it. And, and in a way, that's kind of what these guys did. They were able to take kind of melodic phrases and, 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 and you know, uh, these sweet Euro melodies and, and all but combine them with this sort of funk-driven rhythmic track uh, that really sounds more like dance music uh, than, than ballads or something. And it, it, was, it was coming up with that sort of special hybrid that I think kind of um, created the, the vernacular for pop music today. Yeah, it, it's astonishing. Like a little country, less than 10 million people. Uh, and the number of hits that, that Swedish songwriters have been responsible for is just, it's astonishing. It um, is. You mentioned Max Martin. And for my money, he's the most interesting character in your book, um, even though he's not really in your book, because you, you weren't actually able to interview him. Is that right? Right. He didn't. I, I talked to him several times about interviewing him. And and yeah, in the end, well, he hasn't given an interview in, in years. And uh, that's part of his gift uh, is that he doesn't want to be in the spotlight. Uh, he is happy to have the artist sing his songs and be in the spotlight. So, yeah, he in the end didn't want to would cooperate, you know, on the record. And just for context, I mean, he's written something like 21 number one hits in the Billboard 100, and most of us have never even heard of them. Right, the songs we've heard of, I mean, yeah, his first song was Hit Me Baby One More Time um, for Britney Spears in 1998 when he was the protege of the guy that my book starts with, uh, this, uh, this Swedish DJ named Dennis Pop, who kind of taught him how to, to write songs, and... Um, and then he wrote a lot of songs for the Backstreet Boys, which we all know, and NSYNC. There was sort of a backlash uh, 2000, 2001 against that kind of sound, and Max Martin was sort of caught up in that, I think, and had a little trouble in, for a few years um, getting work. But he then came to America and partnered with this gentleman, Dr. Luke, who's an American, and that changed his sound uh, and, and made it more of a kind of an indie rock uh, pop sound, and those were the songs that he wrote songs. The first one was Since You've Been Gone for Kelly Clarkson, and, and then he wrote a number of hits for Pink, and 
And then he wrote almost, you know, he and Luke wrote all the hits from Katy Perry's uh, Teenage Dream album, which was an enormous success. And then he changed partners again and went on to doing Taylor Swift songs. And uh, and actually his last hit was The Weekends, I Can't Feel My Face. So he's he's kind of reinvented himself at least three or maybe four times, which is one of the many unprecedented uh, things about Max Martin. And, and really that's I mean, you talk about the volume of hits, but it's also even more remarkable, I think, is his longevity in a industry that really five years is a pretty long run. You know, he's had about 20 years and he's still going strong. So that's remarkable. Yes, certainly. Certainly. Um, so he didn't consent to an interview, but I was surprised by how many other sort of pop music insiders um, did consent to interviews. Were you surprised by that? Yeah, actually, I am surprised by it, uh, and it, what, it was never easy. Uh, uh, the music business uh, has there's a sort of a level of um, insiderness, uh, a sort of fear of the uh, people on the outside, whether they're journalists or or whoever they are. You know, talking to the press is always a little bit fraud in the music business, just because they probably do have a lot of secrets that they don't want people to know about. There's a lot of funny business involved in the accounting and, and has been for forever. And so that's probably part of it. But yes, of course, in this situation, you're asking the people who are necessarily in the background and whose livelihood depends somewhat on remaining in the background to actually sort of step into the foreground and talk about the, the fact that they wrote these songs and, and you know the artists didn't have as much to do with them. The, the thing that I think worked in my favor, a couple of things. The New Yorker helped immeasurably. The fact that it was the New Yorker asking them these questions, uh, not just John Seabrook, who, who was writing a book, that made it much easier. Uh, people, people are flattered or, or willing or, you know, they trust the New Yorker. They know the fact check and will be thorough. Um, and their parents, you know, read The New Yorker. Uh, in fact, I recall um, one guy saying to me um, shortly after a piece ran, you know, that he'd been concerned about uh, revealing too much. But uh, it was when his mother said to him that she had read the article and now understands for the first time what he does. Uh, and that made him so happy that his mother finally understood what he does that he was content with the whatever secrets he might have been uh, revealing. But yeah, it, you know, it was tricky. It was always tricky. Uh, and uh, you do have to, I guess, just sort of assume that it's human nature that when, when you write these songs and people don't know that, or, the, you know, that you don't get, I mean, you get paid, but you don't get the credit for it, that there is some impulse in you that wants to take you know, to be acknowledged. And I guess I was always aware of that and hope to try to, you know, tap into that whenever I could. And, you know, it's not like I got, like, even with the guys that gave me access, like Stargate and Dr. Luke, um, it wasn't like I was just sort of free to hang out. You know, it was fairly constrained time-wise and, you know, sort of stage-managed on their end pretty carefully. So I got you know, sort of a definite sort of take on on certain things, but I didn't get like, you know, carte blanche access 
through a lot of stuff. Right, right. Let's, if we can, let, let's get into the process a little bit, because I, I just find this stuff so interesting. Um, you mentioned hooks earlier. Uh, just the other day, I was, I was talking with my dad, and he asked me, what, what's a hook? And, and it's one of those things that I think it's difficult to put into words. Like, we all kind of know what it is, but it's difficult to, to sort of explain it. So if you don't mind, could you tell me, what's, what's a hook? It's kind of like a rhythmic, um, it's a rhythmic melodic phrase. It, it, as a riff is to a rhythm, maybe you could say like a hook is to a melody. Uh, it, it, it condenses uh, the sort of essence of the melody uh, but it's not, it's not, it's short. Uh, so it, you wouldn't really call it, you know, a, a complete melody. It's, it's more like, you know, the sort of just the, the essence of, of, of the thing. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it, I think if you look at all songs, I think you look at music in America, there's always, you know, the sort of tension between the European tradition, which is a sort of progressive melody that kind of moves through the song and takes you to different places as you go through the song uh, and doesn't really repeat a whole lot. I mean, the chorus will, will be repeated, but, but you know, really a distinct sense of movement you get from a classic kind of European, or a, uh, you know, a ballad, a, a pop ballad. But with 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 what I call a track and a hook song, uh, it's really more about repetition than uh, progress. You're not really getting from point A to point B so much as you're just kind of circling around uh, this a hook, uh, which is which is you know it doesn't have to be the exact same hook that that repeats throughout the song. There can be different hooks, but they're all sort of based off of whatever the sort of central melody line is. And, and they basically just sit there to kind of, in, in, a, in a way that like a vamp, in a way that, I don't know, you know, like if you vamp on a piano, you're not really sort of like getting anywhere. You're just kind of fooling around and keeping reader, listeners sort of engaged with, with your riffing off of something. And that's kind of more the spirit of these songs. Um, I, I mean, I think... Whether they were, I don't think these, this type of writing was necessarily invented to make the best possible songs. Uh, I think it was invented because it's, it makes for a lot of songs, particularly in a sort of internet context. You know, you can make tracks on a computer, you can send them out over the internet to a lot of different hook writers, uh, you can quickly amass. Uh, a lot of songs, you can send out the same track to a lot of different hook writers, you could send out different tracks. Uh, so you can get like the same track with a number of different melodies and pick and choose. And you know, you, you build up a pretty large uh, collection of songs that way, pretty quickly, and you can do it sort of spread over space and time in a way that I think if you're a melody and lyrics it's a little bit harder to do it without being in the same room together. And it's a little slower because it's basically one melody and one set of lyrics and you, you go one at a time. Whereas with these songs, you know, you can make a bunch of them at a time. And then the lyrics uh, kind of, you know, get dropped in at the end. And, and I would say if anything has kind of suffered most from the adoption of this technique, 
it's the lyric uh, part of a song, uh, which definitely uh, isn't doesn't have the same kind of wit or double entendre, you know, the the kind of cleverness that even in the '60s and '70s, you know, a lot of songs had. But now, now it's yeah. There's no need for double entendre really because you know you can basically just say whatever you want, whatever you want to say. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, yeah. it, it seems that some of the, the reason that some of these lyrics of these pop songs are so trite uh, and sometimes so um, just totally void of, of meaning um, are simple, simply the fact that, like, for example, baby, uh, hit me, baby, one more time. They weren't aware of the, the connotations associated with hit me, baby, right? Because they're Swedes and they didn't grow up with, with that sort of... Um, exactly. Uh, yeah. They, I mean, I, I think it's true that uh, the Swedes do have kind of a sort of ironic advantage in that they, their English isn't as good as people who would have grown up speaking it, even though in most cases their English is pretty darn good. Uh, so they don't really get caught up on clever lyrics or even grammatically correct lyrics. Uh, uh, Max Martin said, calls it melodic math uh, and... What he means by melodic math is that there is, at least in his mind, uh, the syllables of the words have to match with the melody in a way that uh, is almost more important than the meaning of the syllables. Uh, there's like this sort of melodic meaning that, that works uh, in his head, at least, with with his with his songs and uh if it doesn't make complete sense like hit me baby one more time uh uh or or you know numerous other one of the, one of my favorites is actually uh all of this started with ace of bass that was the very first band that came to them and the very first song had this lyric in it all that she wants is another baby uh, and, uh, you know, it sounds like the woman wants a child, which of course <laughs> is bizarre in a pop song. And it didn't mean that at all. Although now that I've, now that I've disabused people of that notion, I've heard from a lot of readers who actually grew up thinking that that song meant that she wanted to have another child. And it was a sweet song about maternal love, which it's quite the opposite. <laughs> uh, but I ended up very sort of upset that they now have to know the true meaning of the song but sorry well, about that well i was i was reading and i laughed out loud when i when you wrote uh in i want it that way that it the the, the chorus completely contradicts uh the yeah. verses <laughs> yeah it does and i found myself now i'm a child of the 90s so of course i have that song memorized uh, right. against you know against my will kind of thing and then well, i found myself yeah 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 and then i'm 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 uh, reading the lyrics back to myself and it's like oh he's right yeah <laughs> it doesn't make any sense and they actually switched them and the backstreet boys were were upset about it too and and demanded that they re-record the song with the with the radically correct lyric but or one that made sense but in the end they went with the one that didn't make sense just because you know the melodic math was better yeah yeah um i'd like to to touch on a, a criticism i'm not sure if it's a criticism of your book but there was one review i read that was interesting uh by dan wilson who's a singer songwriter right i saw and, that yeah. and the lead singer of semisonic who had a huge hit with closing time Great song. Yeah, I love that song. Yeah, it's, it's a terrific great song. song. Um, and I, I'm just going to read you this, and I'd like you to comment. So Dan Wilson writes, quote, 
So where did Seabrook go so wrong over the course of the song machine as to embrace the trivial, often crass, and mostly purely functional singles he writes about? Perhaps during his research, Seabrook's immersion into the relentlessly trite songs he explored allowed him to perceive beauty and a kind of meaning in their skimming of the surface. What do you think of that? Is, is he onto something there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, well, first of all, Dan sort of acted like I, I wasn't aware of the loss of, you know, sort of musical quality or, or lyrical quality from some of the songs that I sort of embraced these songs. And I don't really think, I mean, it, it, just because I didn't say sort of, you know, openly in the text, oh, I think these songs are not as good as, you know, the Beatles songs, um, I think that the way the, the story is told and the things that happen to the artists and the songwriters in the course of the story does sort of make clear that I don't think this is altogether like a fantastically positive development and that, you know, clearly there are, there are um, ne negative aspects. Uh, I think the whole Luke and Kesha story that comes sort of toward the end of the book is intended to kind of show the dark side of, of this stuff. And, you know, um, so on that level, I, I would say I, I didn't, <laughs> I don't think I really uh, embraced the mindlessness of every pop song I wrote about to the degree that Dan thinks it is, thinks I did. But I will say that I did come to really appreciate some of the songs and, uh, not so much. I would. I think the. I think it was the Rihanna. It was the Rihanna songs, uh, the songs I saw Esther Dean do, and then uh, songs that she, I know she had done for Nicki Minaj uh, and others. Uh, kind of showed me that there was actually um, uh, a yeah, there a positive side to this technique, to this change in the way songs are made. That there is. Uh, this extraordinary uh, lyrical energy that can be produced uh, uh, in this kind of uh, track and hook method that, uh, you know, when it really works, um, I think is, uh, it, it transports you uh, emotionally uh, in a way that, you know, that's kind of what you want from a song. Uh, so, well, so I would say, well, yeah, I don't go back and listen to the Katy Perry song so much that, that I write about in the book. But, I, but, you know, I do go back and listen to Hit Me Baby one more time. I think that song will stand the test of time as any of, as any of Dan's songs, probably. And, and I think that, um, um, you know, Umbrella will stand the test of time. And I think that Since You've Been Gone will, will stand the test of time. So, you know, in any era, there's going to be some songs that survive and some songs that don't. And I'm sure some of the songs in my book won't, but I, I will defend uh, the best of the songs as songs I think you can place behind uh, Sidalus, any great pop song. And oops, I did it again. I mean, I, I think that only monsters must not like that song deep down. It's, it's tremendous. Right, oops, I did it again is just, just from, the, from the very word oops. How, how great to have yeah. oops, you know, in a song. And, and then, yeah, the, the, the melody, the chord progression... Especially during the chorus, again. it's really interesting. It's actually really yeah. cool. Yeah, there's like an E flat, E flat, E flat minor, E major. It's a weird. You know, Richard Thompson actually plays it. I, mean, you probably I was just going to mention that. 
Yeah. 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 And and it's a different song in his hands. Like it sounds like it, like it could almost be like a an old standard or something. Or like a yeah, medieval song or a medieval. Exactly. Exactly. I think I did it again. I made you believe we're more than just friends. It might seem like a crush, but that doesn't mean that I'm serious. But to lose all my senses, that's just so typically me. Actually, that, that sort of ties into something I was going to ask you. Um, how has writing and researching this book, or perhaps it hasn't, but I'm curious if it's changed your experience of listening to pop music. Like if someone turns on the radio, are you, you know, sort of um, unwillingly analyzing every little hook and listening for certain things and trying to figure it out? Well, I think everybody who does this stuff any length of time becomes... Uh, you develop a sort of sense of it, when you hear a new song, you know, is that a hit? Uh, you know, you, if you think about, uh, you get to realize all the decisions that go into making these songs that become hits and the serendipity involved and, and the, the misconceived notions that people had about how they should sound or who should sing them. Uh, it just kind of, it's this endlessly kind of fascinating and interesting process with this magic uh, about it that there's going to be this explosive popularity and, and people involved in that song are going to get rich. Uh, once you get that sort of uh, exciting kind of vibe uh, about about songs, I think you don't lose it. So so I do listen to a lot of songs just from, from that perspective. But I also, I sort of feel, you know, um, in the, the music that I was writing about in this book, um, that uh, you can sort of, you can see how at various points, hip, I mean, hip hop and pop are at various points sort of struggling to find some kind of, you know, happy marriage uh, between them that will allow pop the kind of edginess and, and freshness and currency with youth that hip-hop has and will also allow hip-hop the, the kind of access to the mainstream that melody can provide without undermining, you know, the, the, the hardness of it. And, and I feel like uh, that sound is... When I talk about the sort of Rihanna songs, the reason I think they're so interesting is that they were sort of an early attempt at that. And I think that now we're really beginning to see that coming on in, um, in this kind of newer generation of, um, you know, hip hop people uh, or, or R&B people. I mean, I think The Weeknd is actually fantastically interesting. Uh, but he, of course, works with Max too. But then there's this, these guys like, you know, Fetty Wap and and Future, and, and, you know, some guys from Atlanta, this guy Mike Will made it as a producer. These guys seem like they're starting to make, you know, pop songs without it feeling like a compromise or, 
like a commercialization of, of hip-hop. So, you know, th that's kind of stuff that I guess I kind of continue to listen to. Like, where's it going to go next? Who's, got, who's figured it out? And the other thing I kind of learned from um, the research of this book is that, you know, even though, you know, pop is, you think of it as, you know, sort of like a teen medium, essentially, but the people who are making the songs, many of them are, you know, in, in their 40s, mid four, I mean, Max Martin is, is 44 years old, uh, and the label guys are often in their early 50s, uh, and so you have this kind of odd, you know, situation where, you know, the pop stars are in their early 20s, and, 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 and in the book I, I write about the relationship between Clive Davis and Kelly Clarkson, which is, you know, the January-May thing at its most extreme, you know, like an 80-year-old man and a, you know, you know 21-year-old girl, and you're sort of trying to think of what the audience is is going to is going to want, and and a lot of it just sort of seems like a crazy way of going about it. But if, but if you could sort of if you could if you could allow it to happen a little bit more organically, you know, among the actual musicians and producers and artists, with less of this kind of um, flying in from you know Max Martin and from Sweden to to you know, drop a hook in there. Um, I feel like the music would would improve, and and um, and you know that's kind of what. So that's sort of what I'm what I look for now. That sound. I, I listen to hip hop now much more than I used to, just because I feel like that's where it's at. You know, uh, pop radio. I don't listen to a lot of unless it is kind of hip hop stuff, and um, and I and I also find like streaming has changed uh, my listening habits too by just making it so easy to make like you know a playlist of the best 2015 hip-hop songs and and just listen to them for for a couple of days and you really get you know a, a lot broader experience than if you were just waiting for the radio to, to do that for you I think well on that note before I let you go I have to ask you about Spotify uh, you wrote a really great piece in New Yorker about Spotify do you do you think Spotify is ultimately going to be a good thing for the music industry and and for songwriters? Yeah, I just actually Zach, I just wrote a piece uh, just I think it comes out tomorrow or next day and about songwriters in particular uh, on in, in the streaming world and obviously <clears throat> it is a terrible situation for songwriters uh, for people who have who are not performers not artists who can't make money uh, on the road, uh, who have to rely on uh, the royalties uh, from like the, the publishing copyright. Uh, the situation in streaming is so much less favorable to them than the situation in terrestrial radio that unless the, the rates are changed, it really would be almost impossible to make a living uh, as a songwriter. And you know, and songwriters actually have been doing, they did pretty well over the course of the 20th century. Uh, you know, we've, there's probably a million uh, American songwriters that are able to uh, make a living. And of course, you know, the lucky few are, are able to get extraordinarily wealthy. And, and you know, the fact that we live in, an, in a, in a post-singer-songwriter era where uh, the artists generally are not the ones writing the bulk of their songs, uh, you have this 
the situation where the songwriters are more valuable in, in terms of their material than ever, and yet they're, you know, you, a billion views on YouTube gets you less than a hundred dollars, uh, you know, uh, and, and because of the bizarre licensing uh, arrangements that were made a long time ago, you have to license to, to YouTube and Google uh, and, you know, Amazon at these absurdly low rates because that's the way the laws are written. So unless, unless there's a serious revision of the Copyright Act, you know, I think that, um, I think that, that songwriters are in trouble. And, and the other big thing is, uh, you know, you've got, you've got on the one side a tech company, Spotify and, and, and others that are data-based, uh, transparency is sort of part of their DNA. Uh, you know, they know how many streams any artist uh, picked up. And they could report that if, they, if the labels allowed them to. But then you have on the other side, the labels that non-transparency is their bottom line. And they, uh, they accept, you know, just lump sum payments for their entire catalog from Spotify. And then it's up to the labels to apportion that money according to how, you know, which artists they think will, uh, you know, how many spins they got. And of course, the labels are going to give most of that money to the big artists to pay advances to keep them. And, and so you kind of have this situation that the big kind of get bigger and the poor get poorer, which is a little bit of the way it's going everywhere in our country and, and our continent. And, uh, and, you know, again, you kind of worry that there'll be, you know, the Adele's of the world will be fine. Uh, but, you know, there won't be a whole lot of, you know, sort of Roseanne Cashes or, you know, the edgier or the, the more middle class artists will not do well. And then I say, finally, the other thing that's happening is catalog, you know, like, you know, new music, which was such a big driver of the music business as no longer there were more catalog spins than, than spins for new music on Spotify last year for the first time. And, you know, that sort of seems like a trend that isn't really going to encourage uh, new music and, and innovation either. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of issues that really, really need to be addressed with, you know, legislation uh, or, or judicial reform of the licensing system. Otherwise, we think songwriters are in serious trouble. Well, you mentioned or you uh, wrote um, that I think Roseanne Cash received 104 bucks for something like 600,000 uh, streams of her songs. $104. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the numbers are, are totally crazy. Uh, I, I mean, it's, and then, then, you, then you hear like, you know, um, you know, um, some, some DJ got like, you know, millions because his song was was streamed. Uh, uh, so th there just doesn't really seem to be uh, fairness or logic. And I think it's partly because of this kind of uh, weird marriage between, you know, the sort of non-transparent music side and transparent tech side. And, and, it, and that's a whole like sort of te tectonic plates collapsing into each other thing that's going to be going on for the next 15 or 20 years and and hopefully you know the transparency side will will prevail 
but right now, I, you know, I don't think anybody could call it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, the, we're still coming to terms with Napster all these years later. It's, uh, it's going to take them some time, I guess, to figure right. it out. Right. I mean, Spotify sort of is like Napster, but, but hopefully, you know, and, the, and then the whole argument that, you know, it needs to have the free tier in order to convert people away from piracy and then move them to the, to the pay tier. I mean, I, I believe that argument and, and the data from Scandinavia seems to bear that out very clearly, but it, it, that argument has definitely lost favor here. And, you know, that's why Apple doesn't have a free tier and there's a lot of pressure to, you know, Taylor Swift won't be on Spotify unless she could only be on the pay tier and Spotify won't let artists decide which tier to be on. And, right. And, you know, so Adele's not on it either. And, you know, you kind of wonder what will happen to Spotify if another couple, I mean, Neil Young has taken most of his stuff down, you know, doesn't take that many big artists to jump ship and then the thing becomes a lot less valuable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. I could I could talk to you all day, but I, I know I have to have to let you go. Um, before you leave, I just I'd really like to congratulate you on the success of the song machine. It's a tremendous read, uh, and awesome. th- thank you so much for for joining me today. Thanks, Zach. It's really fun talking to you. Well, there you have it. That's my chat with John Seabrook of The New Yorker. If you'd like to learn more about John and his work, you can visit his website at johnseabrook.com. And I'd also recommend you follow him on Twitter at JM, as in Michael, JM Seabrook. And you can find show notes uh, and links to everything we talked about in today's episode at my website, travelsinmusic.com. Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, and it's making some sort of positive contribution to your day, A, that makes me really happy, and B, if you want to help me out, and if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe on iTunes, and also leave a rating and review if you can. If you'd like to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review, but you don't know how, you can go to travelsandmusic.com slash iTunes. So once again, my name is Zachary Stockhill, and I'd, I'd really like to thank you for joining me today. This really means a lot to me to have your ears for 45-ish minutes in the middle of your day. And until the next time we meet, I'd like to remind you that life is short. So be sure to listen to good music and enjoy yourself. And I'll talk to you very soon. Bye.